This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make records for my own home studio. Some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Capital Engineer Christina Picari. We had a lot of fun talking about a lot of very different and very cool records that she's been on and a lot of things that she's learned along the way. You can find that episode and lots of cool other music podcasts at pantheonpodcasts.com, our network site. And you can find that episode of Ready to Record and all the others on our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, this one is one that I have been excited for for a very, very long time, and I am so glad to be able to share it with all of you. Today, I get to interview the legendary engineer, Shelly Yakis. you don't know Shelly Yakis by name, you probably know him by reputation. He's done everyone from the band, Booker T and the MGs, the Raspberries, Van Morrison, Chick Corea, John Lennon, Tom Petty, Alice Cooper, Joan Jett, Stevie Nicks, Roy Buchanan, the Ramones, the Dire Straits. Anybody you can think of that has had a popular record, Shelly has either worked with them or worked with them on that popular record. The interesting thing about Shelley was he was born into this industry. His father and uncle owned a studio in Boston called Ace Recorders, where he got to be a gopher. Eventually, he moved to New York and found his way into the bigger music scene of the United States, New York, LA, etc. Today, I get to talk about a little bit of everything of Shelley's life and career as well as some interesting advice that I think you all will enjoy hearing. So I'm going to shut up, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Shelly Yakis. Mr. Shelly Yakis, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. I want to jump in rather early in your career. You're, I think, the first person that I've spoken to who has grown up in the studio business, uh, Ace Recording in Boston. What, what was it like being a studio kid? 
It was uh, it was amazing. I, I used to go there on school vacations and weekends and any time I could go, you know, and uh, I was a gopher, you know, go for this, go for that, do errands for whoever needed it. And, uh, you know, my dad and my uncle owned the studio and, and uh, I, I learned some really cool things from, from both of them. You know, they, they were like a full service studio. Clients would come from New York and say, hey, I, I want to record this song or I, I want to redo this hit that's out there. And uh, can, can you put the musicians together for me? So my dad had an arranger on staff and they would give this request to the arranger and find the talent and find the musicians and do this work for people from all over. And uh, they did. They, it went from doing original material to doing covers of songs to doing music for ice skating rinks for, for, for people who were going to compete in ice skating rinks. And they would come in and get a 45 cut or whatever it was or, and somebody from a, a nightclub would come in and say uh i, I have this artist um on a, on a 45 marlena dietrich and can i get some copies of these 45s we want to we want to put her music in our jukebox and in the club and they also had they could also cut lacquers on um uh, presto with presto 1d cutters and if, with a fixed lead screw, which means it's uh, the groove never varies. It, in that day, you couldn't vary the groove. So if something got loud, you'd you'd have to leave a lot of room between the grooves, and that would limit how long your time could be on your on your forty five or seventy eight or thirty three, whatever you were cutting in that day. Sure. And I remember being ten years old and saying to my dad, "Hey, Dad, can I can I learn how to cut one of these?" acetates and he says well when you're tall enough to see over the table you could do it and that's when i was about, <laughs> <laughs> that's when i was about 14 and um it was great it, it was you know i mean having it around 24 7 sometimes and and being having it in the family sometimes you're not able to leave it you know and mm -hmm. the and there are things that go on between partners and 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 clients and stuff that would be better in private rather than discussing it over the di dinner table. Not that it was breaking anybody's trust or anything like that. It was just having a 24 seven. I learned a lot, but there were times I could have used the peace and quiet if you know, <laughs> if you know sure. what I'm saying. So, but it was really a fabulous experience because I learned how to hear in my father's studio. And then after being there for a few years, I went to New York, got a job in a, in a New York studio. We used, we used to hear tapes come in, four-track tapes come in to, to the studio in Boston, and I'd say, how do they, how do they get that sound? You know, you'd hear the four-track, almost the whole rhythm section would be on one track, bass, drums, guitar, keyboards, and then the other tracks could have been lead vocals, um, backgrounds, and Maybe you had one track left for strings or you never know what was going to go on there. But these guys who could combine those instruments all on one track and get it right. So when the final mix, it all worked. It's a pretty remarkable stuff. You had to get your sounds right. And the sounds were great. Yeah. And I wanted to learn how that was done. And, and, I, and when I went to New York, that's, that's really where I learned how to do that from guys who were really great at what they did. and. 
And because um, in Boston, there was no, um, the producers weren't demanding. They would just um, have an engineer, uh, uh, the engineer who was my, my father's brother, Herbie. Um, they would just say, okay, let's do this session. Here's what we're doing. And they didn't ask for too much. But in New York, they were very demanding. They, and, and not, and not in, a, in a bad way. They just wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And they weren't going to stop asking until they heard it. And uh, you had to learn how to satisfy those requests or you weren't going to work again with that, with that client, you know? Sure. So um, growing up around it was, uh, I was very fortunate. Well, I mean, you stayed in the industry. I'm, I'm sure it, uh, it had the effect on you. And you've, you've had an impressive career of a lot of big names of all across your resume. I mean, I think everybody knows Lennon and, and the band, as well as the Winter Brothers, you too, Tom Petty. Your, your, your career has ranged to a lot of different people. I suppose that beginning is where it all comes from. So speaking of that resume, I would love to get into some of your work. You worked uh, with the band in the 60s. You worked with them on music from Big Pink. Um, and that's a personal favorite of mine. It's on my record player all the time. Mm -hmm. um, that's great. So I'm curious, what, what was it like working with them? Well, they were unique. When they came in the studio... Their whole approach to everything was was different than what came before, and um, I remember they were called at first. They were called the Crackers, and the record label wouldn't let them keep that name. But <laughs> yeah, but um, I remember somebody saying to me, "It was so new at that time." Remember somebody saying to me in the hallway. What's that crap? I said, it's the next big thing. And it was. It was when that album came out. It, it, it got a lot of attention, uh, and rightfully so, you know. It was really uh, their approach to music, how they, heard, how they heard it, how they created it. It was very cool. How we set up the room, you know, was even different than what came before. Um, we set up the room uh, so they could all see each other and they were sort of around each other, kind of in a circle. And um, out in the open with not a lot of gobos and not much baffling and let it fly, you know? Sure. Now, just a little bit of a tangent on Garth in particular. Everybody loves uh, the Hammond organ. I, I have one in my studio, a Hammond M3. Garth is famed in in the keyboardist community for playing a Lowry was, was that a interesting thing to come in to the studio with yeah it was a Lowry through a Leslie speaker and in that day there were no except for fuzz boxes uh there were no real boxes that could make sounds um you had to make your own sounds and you had to as a as a someone in a band uh or a player that's hired you had to bring your sounds. You had to bring your 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 sounds to the table, and one of the things that I, I remember with Garth, there were a couple of there were a couple of songs where he got these remarkable sounds, where he got the 
the organ to growl and uh and then um which I had never heard before just it was really loud but it wasn't it was distorted but the right kind of distortion and right. he knew just how to do that stuff the other thing that was that I saw that was I had never seen before was we were setting up one particular day and uh and Garth had a telegraph key on on top of his organ and on the telegraph key you can adjust the tensions so so you can adjust the feel to to how hard it is to push down that lever to to make contact and he loosened it all up so that it so that it just flopped around and he said listen to this and he whacked the, the key and it started bouncing up and down and he had the organ going through that key the organ sound going through that key before it got to the leslie and so while it's bouncing up and down and turning the sound on and off it's it was just something i never heard before it was all it's all like wow how do you think of this pretty great stuff and so that that was that was one of the uh, sounds that he made on on he used it on one song and and um and then moved on to uh, to other stuff but you know it was so inventive what they were doing and and uh when you listen to that that album it doesn't sound like they're thinking about every note they're not they're just playing from their heart and soul and it comes across that way and i think that's why a lot of people love that album and you listen to it all the time and it's it's always sounds fresh to me it's because it came from the deepest part of these guys right every time i put it on uh, it sounds like they're dancing and and kind of giggling on the inside when when some of these things come on i mean i think of i think of chest fever and and that uh that organ sound right and I I feel like, and and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but there are times where I listen to that intro, and I feel like the rest of the guys were looking at Garth, kind of with a pleasant smile on their faces, and maybe a belly laugh <laughs> came out when they heard that tone. I, I I mean it's an aspirational thing for me as well to try and get a Hammond to sound like that, and of course you know you had Keith Emerson doing that years later, but. Arthur Hudson, man. Yeah, pretty fabulous, you know. And uh, the spirit of that album, what you hear, and what I would call the spirit, the feel, the the come on of it, the 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 take you over part of it, where no matter what you're doing, it takes you over. You can't help but listen to it. That can't happen unless the musicians playing that music feel that way or feel a certain way that allows that to have that feel, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen from people touching their instruments. So I've always noticed when I, uh, when I worked stuff came out of the speakers, the way I felt. So if I didn't feel good on a certain day, when I walked in the studio, I had to leave it behind me because I knew I'd hear it on the final product. And I had to find ways to just tell myself, Hey, you feel, you feel fine. How do you feel? You feel good. And you feel, you actually feel better when you say that <laughs> to yourself. But, you know, how you feel inside when you're creating music is how 
is is what it's going to be like when it comes out of the speakers. It's right. either going to be drudgery or depressing or just laying there uninteresting. But if you're alive and you're excited about what you're doing, it it will come across that way. Sure. That's I, it, that's the eternal goal, isn't it? Is to make music that that feels interesting to you and and feels interesting to everybody. Yeah, that was always my starting point. Was whatever my part was in the creation of of these songs and the the, the creation of the album or the single. I always had to make sure that I had my head on straight and uh, that I had a good attitude, even if outside the studio. I was having a rough day, whether it was, uh, you know, for whatever, for whatever reason, you know, sure. we all have, we all have personal things going on and we all have, uh, interruptions in our life and, but you can't allow it in the studio. I, I learned from guys who were really great at what they did and day after day, they were in the same mood. And I learned that you gotta just leave it at the door, you know, and you come in and my client, ex- my client usually has heard something I've done and he expects a lot from me and he expects to hear for his group or his artist or his song at least what I've done for other people, not less. That's why he's working with me or she's working with me. Sure. And so in order to give that to them, I had to learn how to get to a place where I could deliver that. And I remember... I, I remember asking these guys when I first started see see in that day there were there were staff engineers and at A&R recording there were seven staff engineers and they each specialized in s- some type of music whether it was Broadway show rock and roll uh jazz uh, com- uh, uh jingles meaning commercials uh uh symphonic music on and on and I remember saying to one of these guys because the hardest thing for me was to stay up, stay awake uh, as an assistant engineer mm-hmm. uh, 15 hours a day. I mean, I, it's hard to do and, and be aware and pay attention. And I said to them, how do you guys do it? And they said, well, you got to And the guy points to the engineer points to his head and he said, you got to do it here. Because if you use drugs to do it, You'll be burnt out, and and this is a this is and I'll never forget this. You know, he didn't say much. He just said, "Look, this is a business of longevity," and he said, "You're not going to have longevity if if you bring drugs into your into your whole thing, and you use those to stay up." He said, "Because you burn out." And he made an example of a couple of engineers that had actually died because they had done too much coke or too much whatever they were doing to stay up. And uh, they just got so burnt out that they just couldn't go on anymore. This engineer said to me, you know, what's the sense of even starting being a recording engineer if you're not going to be able to finish, if you're going to be done in, f- in five years? What, what is the point of that? And that, that I always remember that conversation, you know. Sure. Now, I'm interested because of the way you've been talking about serving the client at Lenise Bent said something in our conversation that that stuck with me about when she goes into a recording session or when she starts working with a client, she becomes both the newest member of the band and the biggest fan of their music. Um, right. And I get that. 
would you take a similar stance? Do you do you find yourself uh, taking the taking the position of newest member of the band once you get into the studio? Well, for me, for me, because I was always careful to never make a producer feel that I was trying to be the producer or mm. take his job or or influence the band in any way, and I was really very extremely careful to never do that. Um, I I think it's important to know your place in the control room, and and I'm not the songwriter, I'm not the singer, I'm not the leader of the band, I'm not the record label, I'm not the producer. Although I work closely with the producer and help the producer as much as I can, so my job is to get what the band is doing to come out of the speakers, and what's in the producer's head and the artist's head to come out of the speakers in a way that they want to hear it. And um, I've seen producers become the fifth member of a band, which was appropriate. And then I've seen producers try to become the fifth member of the band, which wasn't appropriate because the leader of the band or the head of the band was very strong in, in some important ways in terms of record making. And you're going to get you're going to have a clash. So, really, people that have been successful in this business know their place, and they know where they fit in. And there are times when you know, well, most of the time it's just the producer and I in the control room when the band is out in the room working and playing and overdubbing. So a lot of a lot of things are said in private just between the engineer and the producer, but. Um, I, I've whispered to the producer, I, I think they have, when he was going to take uh, a certain take, that I, I think they were building to another take. Why don't you try one more? You know, and and he did the talk back and he'd say, let's try it one more time. And sometimes that, that next one would be the take and sometimes uh, it wasn't. And, and when it wasn't, you knew that you had the take. Uh by comparison, you know? Sure. And uh, so I, I was always careful with my suggestions to producers and, and not to become, not to become a fifth member of the band and not, and, and not to go beyond what I, what I do, except being really trying to be as helpful as I can uh, in helping them create this, this piece of music. Cause it's not easy. There's never been an easy one ever. I, I want to jump to a, a slightly different topic. Um, you were talking about when you were in Ace recording, you had four track. I'm curious of your uh, opinion on moving from four and eight up to 16 and then 24. And then, of course, in the mid late 90s, the, the jump to digital recording. Some people say it improved creativity and some say it hindered it. I, I think both sides of the argument cite the same reasons for for their particular positions what philosophy do you take on the move from higher track counts of tape and then the move to digital well each one of these formats has a sound right and it's really subjective it's um, i mean if you asked a bunch of people what they thought of uh, the sound of four, four track 
you'd get many different answers, you know. But for me, up to 16 tracks sounded really solid, you know. After 16 track, you had to work harder on a 24 track machine, on a 24 track recording to get the, the balls that you could get on a 16 track or an eight track. You were to record drums on a 16 track and those same drums on a 24 and you played back, you'd hear a difference. Some people say there's more noise on the 24 track. There's more hiss because the heads are smaller and it sounds better on a 16 because the heads are larger, the tracks are larger, same size, same two inch tape, you know? Mm-hmm. But really, I don't know if anybody really knows. I certainly don't know. I just know I, what I hear and what I like and what I don't like. And I always had to work harder with 24 track. Um, and, you know, after a while of using it, you forget what a 16 sounds like until you until you remember it again and say, you know, these drums are a little smaller than the playback. And, and I remember using a 16 track. And if you had one to break out, you'd hear a a meaningful difference, you know? Sure. So then to answer your question, going to digital, I'll never forget this. When the industry started to go digital, I remember, I remember the mastering engineer on a project I was working on saying to me, all right, you and I cut the vinyl, you and I EQ'd the vinyl together but don't bother coming for this digital part of it because I have to, I have to re-EQ it for a CD and I have to send the factory or I have to send the label who's going to send the factory a, uh, uh, a digital file. And, um, he said, don't bother coming. And I said, listen, this is, these things are forever. You know, they're out and they're forever. I I'm going to come. He says, you're going to hate it because there was a deficiency. Even though there was some good things about digital, when you A-B'd what you recorded and, and where and the original, there was a, a difference and it felt a little shallow. So he and I, he and I took the time to uh, figure out where that defic- deficiency was and we added it back into the recording. I mean into the the uh, EQ of uh, whatever we were doing. Because don't forget, on a vinyl record, as as you go in towards the center, you have to make up for the, for the band's... Um, it changes sound. As audio changes sound as you go towards the label. Because the best sounding cut is the first cut on an, on an LP because it's actually going the fastest. And then uh, you, get, you get, even though it's 33... As you get more and more in towards the center, those diameters are smaller, and it it changes. So you have to EQ for it to to uh, to counter that change. Well, if you're doing a, if you're doing a, a, a EQing for a CD, there is no change as it goes from track to track. So you have to re EQ everything. And um, I remember we were able to hit the spots. Depending on the song, there were there were like two two EQ spots where, depending on the song, you could choose one or the other, 
and it would fill it in and, and give us back what we felt we were putting in and it worked. But then as technology advanced, maybe a year from then, um, the the next format that was used would give you back slightly different than that first format. And and what would happen was the EQ points that we were using to make digital sound more like what we were putting in didn't work anymore because um, either the difference, like the steps on the EQ were too much or too little to make up the difference. And if you went, if it was too little and you went one more step, it was too much. And if it was too much on the first step, there were no other steps to try. So then at that stage, it became difficult to get digital to sound like what you were putting into it. And even now, if you were to listen, and a lot of people don't do this, but when I teach a college class, I'll I'll get invited in for a day or two to teach a a college class that that might be like a four-year recording school kind of thing. Sure. Um, um, you know, what, what we do in the real world and, and, and why you should do it. Um, when I've said to them class of 24 seniors, I say, who in this room has made a digital copy and then listened to the source after you made the copy, you ran the source with the copy and listened to see if there was any difference and no one raised their hands. Okay. And there's a difference. It's it's a, it's more than uh, it's surprising. Let's put it. First of all, it's surprising that there's a difference, and there's a, and there's a big enough difference where you say, "Wow, you know, if if this got duplicated again and again and again, because the the labels were convinced that if you had digital, you could just keep making a copy from a copy, and that copy could make another copy if you wanted it." And you could, you know, by the time you you do that, you listen to what you end up with compared to the original, and there's huge differences. And it starts to affect the feel of the music in a major way. So we were always very careful to try to keep it, you know, one generation down and, and, and get the sound right. And even now, if you listen to the difference between what you're putting in and what you're getting back, it's not the same. Now, I, I realize that even in analog that happens, but at least in analog it's a predictable difference and you know what you can do with it to make right. it so it's less of a difference. But with digital, for whatever reason, um, it's not predictable and you have to be really careful. See, if if you don't believe that this is going on, then you don't do anything about it and you you just keep turning your volume knob up and you think everything's just fine. But really what happens is it's being degraded. Uh, Your audio is being degraded as you're working on it, you know, and you you bump up the volume. Oh, that's better. I must have been tired. But to make really good sounding music that's, that's powerful and and no matter what the genre is, that's powerful and pleasant to listen to, which is always hard to do, um, it doesn't, it never works when it's annoying to listen to, but when it's powerful and pleasant and musical and takes you over because it's not fingernails on a chalkboard, um, which humans hate, uh, you can come out with something really great. And I think the digital, what you can do with digital technically is really great, ex- except if you 
if you, because you can do so much with it, if, if you try to make a perfect record, I've always felt my own opinion is if you, if you try to make a perfect record, they're boring. A great record is exciting, but a yep. perfect record is kind of just lays there. And you can, you can easily take the feel out with digital because you can adjust the space between every snare drum beat, every bass drum beat, uh, every, every note on the entire recording. You can get it to be just perfect, but that doesn't seem to work well. It becomes something different than maybe for the, the particular song it might work, but it, overall, overall, it, it, it doesn't work. The final, right. the final result is, in my opinion, uh, just uh, sort of lays there with no feel, you know, or not enough feel. Well, you know, I've, I've, I agree with that. I've found lately I'm, I'm in the middle of this project right now, and I'm, I'm getting uh, a little bit of advice from the guy named Tree Adams, um, whose daughter actually uh, sang on this, uh, on this particular track of my band's. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I he had to ask me was kind of, you know, what what were my comps? And initially, my comps were very seventies. It was the, you know, everything from the meters to Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, you know, I had Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis second quintet in my head, <laughs> and uh, and then I then kind of I realized that this was turning into a pop song. And so he said, well, make two versions. And so I'm in the middle of making two versions. And I, I, one where I do a lot of drum editing and get everything on the grid. And I'm trying to avoid losing feel and not everything I'm getting perfect on the grid. Um, but uh, I'm doing that. And then there's the other version where I just leave everything be. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of like I kind of like the thing where I leave everything be, but for for sake of practice and and what my comparables are in the modern era, I'm I'm trying to do the uh, the modern thing in timeline. I got to tell you though, it's not very fun. <laughs> oh, I understand. I, I get it. Believe me, I I understand. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. Now you were talking about feel and power, and I think. Uh, feel and power uh, in my head uh, gets summed up quite well with uh, John Lennon and some sessions you did with him, uh, the Imagine Sessions. I'm I'm really curious because I've always loved this sound. How the hell did you get that piano sound? Well, it was it was how John touches the piano. You know, we did uh, on Walls and Bridges. John had Elton John come in. And um, I didn't record the piano. Actually, Jimmy Iovine recorded that piano on one of the songs, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Gotcha. And I, you know, Jimmy, I remember Jimmy saying to John, you know, John, he, how do they get that piano sound, that Elton John piano sound? He said, I, I, I want to be able to get something that, that he really likes and that you really like. And John said, don't worry, it comes out of the piano when he touches the keys. And it's the same thing for John. You know, when he played piano, it made that sound. And you just have to record what's there and then 
try to take what's there and expand on it with some EQ or limiting or using the right mics and getting the most even even sound you can get. That record also has a rather interesting and phenomenal bass sound. Is it a similar thing? Is it how how the bass player played, or was there more uh, more to it than than that? Well, we got um, it, it. It's how the bass player plays, and it's and sure, it has a lot to do with the recording because you got to capture it. But we on Imagine, we got a we got that song already recorded where we added um, instruments to it, strings. Phil Spector was in the room for a lot of it with John. We added strings. We doubled the piano. Not what, No one knew this. We, When the sessions were over, Roy Sakala, who's the main engineer, and I um, would go to another room after the session, and we would do stuff that John knew about, and he was either there or he... Uh, he just said, okay, why don't you just go for this? And we we would double the piano with John or we would add some instruments um, and then remix the mix. Mm-hmm. So that bass sound was was already there from from whoever recorded from whomever recorded the, the track. Sure. This is a little bit of a tangent, but this is a more of a fan question than anything. I've I've heard from a lot of different people and a lot of different places that John Lennon was not a fan of his voice. Did did you find that to be true? I if it was true, I didn't I didn't know it. He he you know, some songs we used a 57 on his voice, believe it or not, cuz really? it doesn't yeah, it doesn't work for everyone. I mean, I know that uh, there were some big artists that use it for certain songs, and you go, could go to another song with the same artist, and it sounds hideous. But uh, with John, we used we used that mic, and we used some other mics that were more appropriate for other songs. But I never heard anything about. I'm not saying it's not true. I just didn't experience that with him. And I'll tell you one thing: he did was he always wanted to hear delay tape delay in his headset when he was singing and he would sing to the tape delay, which is a really interesting concept. I had never thought about it before I saw him do it and recorded him doing it. So he would, he would express himself in a way when he sang that would throw that delay in a certain way. And the delay would become part of his voice and part of the song. And it's different than when you get to the mix and you and you add delay that was never there or never sung to that way. You add delay, then it's static. It's just a, you know, the machine runs at one speed. The delay machine runs at one speed, right. and uh, and and what you return is is always an exact same time. Um, but what he did was the opposite of it being static. He was able to the machine stayed the same speed, but he moved the delay with his voice and how he accented some of the words. And, you know, it's something that you can't duplicate. Sure. Well, I mean, he was John Lennon. I'll say, you know, he, and he was, he was the greatest guy. You hear a lot of stuff about John. I never, you know, that stuff the press talked about and 
I never experienced any of that stuff. Um, he he was into his music. He just wanted to make the best version of his song that he could, and that was his focus, you know. Sure. Now, changing subject a little bit, not not too much. The past couple of questions, though, are rather centered around the playing style. One might uh, infer that they would be kind of gear-related questions. You know how how piano sounds or bass sounds or vocal tones were mm-hmm. were uh, were uh, made. Um, so I I kind of have two questions that that sort of play into each other. Do you consider yourself a gearhead? And do you think too many people get hung up on the equipment used? I I don't think of myself as a gearhead. I I, and and there's nothing wrong with with that term or being a gearhead. People find interesting things and interesting equipment. I I kind of stick with um, equipment that. that I that's tr- tried and true equipment that I know will work for me in any studio, whether I've ever worked in that studio or not. I know I can count on certain piece of equipment to give me a certain sound that I'm looking for. And uh, I get a lot of, over the years. I got a lot of calls. Hey, I, we invented this. Hey, will you listen to it? Hey, will you try this? I, out of courtesy and and curiosity, I I, I would give it a try, but. Many of the things I tried weren't, in my opinion, weren't giving me what I was looking for. Um, once in a while, I would come across a piece of gear that, that I said, "Wow, you know, this this really this is really special," but it was rare. And so I, I get that the manufacturers are pounding away at at the users and saying, "We have the greatest things in sliced bread." But you can't believe everything you read. You got to use your ears and and be true to your true to your soul, and you know, say, okay, is newer better? Not necessarily. All right, this company has a new piece of gear. Let me let me try it. Uh, let me try it and see if it and if it gives me what I want, or or or, or you're the type of person that has to have that new piece of gear because everyone else has it, and uh, you know. You, you you do it based on that and, and you, you're just using it because you, you believe it gives you something you want. But really the, the, the impetus for the use is that, oh, it's the newest, greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, right. maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. The same piece of gear in, 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 in different people's hands also can be used differently and end up with a different sound. So I, I don't fault it at all i'm just saying everyone has this style and um there's a lot of ways to get to san francisco from los angeles you know there's a lot of different roads you can take and they all get you there but it's it's the road you decide to take and i don't think all i have is my opinion you know about what works for me i hear records that other people make and and I, i think there's some I've heard some remarkable stuff, and uh, I, I sometimes I know how they do it, but I couldn't get that same sound from those pieces of gear that they're using. But they can because of how they hear. Right. 
Well, I guess in that in that regard, then, um, do you have go to? What are your go tos? And and do you do you find yourself learning new things about the go tos that you've been using? Um. My go-to things are, are, are equipment that gives me uh, something that sounds even to me. Bottom, middle, and top is even. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a purist, so I'm not looking for it to sound exactly like what came in. Because sure. a, a lot of times gear like Pultex and LA-2As and Fairchild's they almost always change the sound that comes in, but it, it it's a change, in my opinion, for the better. It's enhanced in some way. It has more a little more depth. Um, without even using the equipment, just passing through it gives it a certain sound, and I like that. I, I've tried a few pieces of gear that have no personality at all because they were designed that way, and, and I don't care for them. I, I'm always looking for it to be sound to be enhanced in some way that works for the song and it can help me get to the finish line. Sure. Well, I mean, I think I've, I've heard you say that you're a fan of, of printing, uh, printing effects, printing sounds versus doing them after the fact. Uh, absolutely. Because I, I learned early on that I have no right to tell my client Oh yeah, we'll we'll get it in the mix because sometimes it just doesn't appear in the mix, no matter what you do, because you weren't starting with what you thought you had. And I, I came from the kind of background where you got to hear it now, or you may not hear it later. You might not hear it later, right? And uh, if I'm hearing it now, the only way I can retain it um, is is to re- is to record it right on the track. And, you know, people say, oh, how can you do that? Well, to me, you have to do it because uh, without doing it, you, you, you're putting your credibility at risk with your client. Not to say that, you know, you might not be able to get him what he wants, which would be a drag because he was excited about what he was hearing at that moment in the studio. And so... People say to me, I don't understand. Suppose you want to change it later. Well, it's not the kind of, I'm not doing the kind of things that I would want to change later. I'm doing uh, things that are putting some basic EQ on just to help the sound um, come across a little stronger. I might even put the layer reverb right on the track, but it's buried in the instrument so it becomes part of the instrument and you don't hear the technology. But believe me, when you get to the mix and you put, let's say, a snare drum that has a little reverb around it or a guitar that has a little bit of delay or reverb on it, you put that into the mix and then EQ and limit EQ and limit that or, or not limit it, compress it or not. But whatever you do to it, you're doing to a finished sound. And it's a very different final product than if the sound was never touched and recorded flat. Um, sure. Very different. Because you're not you don't have those you don't have those other elements like reverb or delay or EQ on the sound that you're starting with. Plus, 
what happens, what, what I believe happens is when you record flat, in order to make it competitive when you're mixing, you have to use so much EQ and so much limiting, the equipment doesn't sound good being used that much. You may not notice it, but when you when you got, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70 tracks, and none of them have been touched except in the mix, and you're forced to, uh, and you, you don't think about it, just do what sounds right to you, but the curve on an equalizer, when you use it a little bit twice, is much more musical and powerful sounding than using it once a lot and having it so peaky sounding that it's on the edge of annoying. Um, and the sounds actually get smaller when you do that, mm. uh, in, in, in my opinion. And, and when you add that to digital, which doesn't help the size of your sound, you, you risk ending up with something that's uh, everything's in the same place and com- same space and competing with each other. And I'm, I'm a big believer in doing a little bit twice rather than a lot once. Sometimes you're forced into that situation where you might have an instrument where you, you, you can't do anything with it. You have to record it flat or a voice is unusual sounding and you want to record it flat just because, you know, you, you can't tell what to do with it. But that's rare. So you record it flat and you work it out later. But in that case, a lot of times I chain two pieces of equipment together. So I use uh, the both a little bit once, you see which is almost the equivalent of doing it live rather than using one piece of equipment a lot. And uh, limiters don't sound good. What comes out of a limiter when you, when you, or compressor, when you use them a lot, you may think it sounds good because you're fooling yourself with the volume uh, in your monitors. Um, uh, you may think it sounds good, but usually it's taken the life out of it, out of the instrument or the vocal. And and in the and you don't notice it because you 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 you're playing with your volume your your speaker volume, turning it up, turning it down, whatever you're doing, and and um, in the final in the final thing, it's not it's not big sounding. It's a bunch of little sounds struggling for the same place and the same plane, and no front. No front to back. You can have left to right because you got pan pots, but what are you going to do for depth? You can't. You can't over reverb it. Hmm. So right. there's there's a lot to say for um, not being afraid to to do it live, and you and in order to do it, you have to pretty much know what you're hearing. So how do you do that? How do you? There's so many home studios now. Most of them are, except for the people who are doing record label level work except for those people. There's probably a few hundred of, of people doing that, but there are millions and millions of people around the world who have home studios. And um, they're usually islands to the rest of the world. They don't really connect. What you think you have in some of these studios is not what, is not what comes out of them, except the, the engineer doesn't know that for whatever reason. They just think what they're doing sounds great. And they're not aware that what's what's ending up on someone's desk could be a decision maker or be important to your client's success just doesn't cut it. So there are ways to, um, you know, and I teach those ways. 
I teach those ways. This is with this with this pandemic. I, I've done a lot of stuff, classes online, one on one classes, or a bunch of people that uh, that want to further their knowledge or get more ideas about how to make better better sounding music. I'll do that on Zoom with them. And uh, it's it, it's interesting because of my experience, I'm I'm really able to pass on some stuff to them that they never thought of before, and it doesn't cost any money or uh, you don't have to have a ton of money for equipment in a home studio these days. Sometimes you just have to rearrange stuff or spend very little money to be able to compete with with the big dogs, you know. Sure. I mean, that's, uh, I suppose that's how I'm talking to you, right? Is you can, you can spend not that much money and, and find yourself doing, you know, interesting work. Um, now on the, uh, on, on the topic of reverb and printing sounds, um, you've worked with Stevie Nicks. Uh, and you worked on Belladonna, which is probably one of her most uh, famous works. And I, I think everybody knows Edge of Seventeen is, you know, the the thing that it is, uh, however you like it. I'm interested to hear what those sessions were like, but I bring her up because I'm interested to hear your opinion on that whole 80s sound, especially revolving around the drums and this whole gated snare reverb thing. Was it something that you were interested in, or was it something that you weren't too fond of? That reverb sound, you mean? Yeah. Well, in the day, in in, in that day, um, what it sounded appropriate because other there were other things on the radio that were like that, and it didn't sound uh, it didn't sound strange. It, or odd or anything like that. I think when music started to dry up uh, years later, uh, I think that then then the, you could hear the difference between that 80s style reverb and, um, and whatever, and 90s style recording. But it was appropriate at the time, so it wasn't anything that I would think about. I was just, I was just trying to take a song and make it as exciting as I could, uh, within the parameters of the song and, and, and what the producer and, 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 uh, artists were looking for. Sure. Well, in that regard, there's this whole resurgence of, of sounds of seventies and eighties. I mean, we see things like, uh, Fleetwood, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, there's uh, Greta Van Fleet being the, you know, the, the, the newest Led Zeppelin or however they want to build themselves. And there's other rock bands like Joyous Wolf out there doing the, doing the seventies thing. And then there are some of these modern producers, uh, producing music that they, uh, do rather throw back to the eighties stuff. Uh, do you think this throwback is a welcome return or do you think it's preventing the industry from innovation? I think because it never, 
it never uh, is like the original. It's something different, which which isn't a bad thing necessarily. I think it's innovation of its own kind. Sure. Going forward to today, you work on something called Aftermaster, um, which is a very interesting studio. I've seen uh, studio tours of of Aftermaster as well as you know looking at your product, and it's a it's a really interesting. Um, idea in a very cool studio uh that you have um what was the inspiration for that well aftermaster was really before it was called aftermaster was called studio one media and uh it was really like uh technology um in terms of um they started out with having a video booth that was very very sophisticated and uh, they asked me to see if I could get stuff to sound like it was done in a studio and automate it, but I wouldn't be there to to mix it or record it. And um, well, the product was something that um, uh, I brought to to Aftermaster. The 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 design, the concept, I brought to Aftermaster, and um, the CEO fell in love with it, and we then worked at developing it to to be accepted by more and more people for because it could enhance audio and still retain what the original um creators intended sure. and and uh we always felt that if we had studios it would give the company more credibility because first of all we loved having studios and we loved that part of the business and combining that with uh, technology seemed to be a natural progression for us. And um, I remember uh, building studios uh, for them, and then this, and then this Graham next door to us, about twenty feet away, was a building that had Graham Nash's studio in it, and um, over the that he built in the seventies at Crossroads of the World, and. There was um, a lot of owners since he gave it up in the 70s or early 80s. And it eventually came up for that it was available to rent this studio. So we took it over and we redid the whole place, keeping the things that worked, got, it, got rid of the stuff that didn't work. And basically, some my understanding, it was hard to get information about what Graham did, but some of the some of the wood which looked like redwood that's in the studio. It's there's a there's a, a rumor that it came from Graham Nash's porch from his house, huh. um, but I, we can't. We I haven't been able to find out if that's exactly where it came from. And then there's a rumor that it came from someone else's house that was a big artist at the time. And, uh, but, but anyway, you know, there were things that really worked great about that studio. And as I say, we tried to retain that, but we had a, in refurbishing a studio, first of all, it's a lot of work and it's very difficult to, when you make changes in refurbishing a place and rebuilding a place that you, it's very difficult to retain what worked before you touched it. So you have to, 
you have to be able to recognize what did work and retain it and what doesn't work and get rid of it and substitute something that does work. And so we ended up with a place that um, was really, uh, I, I was very proud of it. And um, I found the board for, the, I found the SSL for, for the studio. You know, it's always a big deal to find a console that as a centerpiece for, for, for a room. And I was uh, invited to speak at a music convention in Chicago. And uh, I met someone, I met a producer that, that, had a board in storage and he told me that that it came from um that it, that he got it from a broker who got it from saturday night live um or actually there might have been another owner in between but regardless the original board was in saturday night live for four or five years and it was like a 96 input board then it was uh uh bays of it would take it off to be able to resell it to s- studios which didn't have enough width in their control room to have a 96. But it was uh, 80, it ended up to be 80 input. And we had enough room for it in our, in our, uh, in our studio. And because, you know, these boards, they all sound different from one to the next. You could have the next one off the assembly line sound completely and totally different than this particular board. Sure. So because, because we were able to go back and uh, we found a site that showed uh, we, we could listen to and see uh, every every guest speaker on Saturday Night Live from inception and every and every band that was a guest band, we were able to hear during that four year period what that board sounded like, and we knew it sounded really, really good, so we ended up getting it we ended up buying the board and Stalling it, and it was uh, it, it turned out to be great for the studio. Sure. When you're now, I don't think this is probably a a question that most people in home studios will will need to ask for the future. But I'm curious on a personal note, what do you look for in a board if you're if you're installing it as a centerpiece in a studio? Well, it has to have a sound. It has to have, for me, it has to be a, make a sound that's really everything you dream about. Powerful, musical. I've worked on boards that were named, you know, whether it was SSL or Neve, that just sort of, I've worked on a few of them where they just sort of sounded ordinary or plain or had no balls to them. And I've worked on other ones that just bring your music alive. And so that's what we're looking for because the ones, the boards that just sound plain, it you can't fix that. Right. Very, very difficult to fix without a huge expense. Even, even if you had the money to do it, you don't know if you're actually going to find the reason why they just sound thick and uninteresting sounding. You know, it has to be able to pass a signal and retain this, the excitement of the original signal, sure, or 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 slightly enhance it. You know, which is which is always possible. So that's what we're looking for. That's what I'm always looking for. Of course. Now I want to jump topics for a minute, and I, I'd like to ask what 
whose music intrigues you these days? What what artists do you find promising that you who are you dancing to in in your (laughs) kitchen making dinner? Bruno Mars is one of my favorite artists. Um, and I think he's making consistently great records. You know, I I don't disagree with that. I he's he found his uh, once Uptown Funk came out. I think he really found his gear. <laughs> God, God love all that that uh, that singer songwriter poppy acoustic guitar stuff. You're amazing, just the way you are sounding records that he did before that but once he got into that gear of of uh of uh uptown special and and everything since that just a fabulous fabulous guy i I completely agree now when you're recording an artist what do you what do you look for when you're taking on a new client what where are you uh, where do you see their talents and go, okay, I want to work with this person? If someone is playing me a, a, a song of theirs or a demo of theirs, I'm looking to see if I feel I can make it better. Not different. Can I improve it? Can I bring it to the next level in some way, sound-wise and excitement-wise and mix-wise? Can I do that, or am I just going to be able to make it different, which isn't good enough? So I always tried to work with artists where when I listened to their demos of of the songs we'd be working on, I felt I could add something that could be important. And then mostly that I got ideas while I was listening to their music and saying, you know, I could try this here. I could try this in the verse. If I made the drum sound more like this, would it it enhance the, the song? If I got a different voice sound, and what they've been getting, could I make it stronger? So I'm looking to see if I can take it further, really, in the right, in the in a in a creative, productive way. Gotcha. So I think um, I think I have one last question for you, and in in a similar vein to the last one, which is, uh, what advice do you have? for people preparing for their first studio session. Obviously, it's going to be a little bit different uh, nowadays now that we're in the middle of a plague. Uh, yeah. But uh, they're, assuming we get out of this, which I, I have every assumption that eventually we will, uh, when, when somebody goes to their very first studio session at a real studio, um, what, would, what would your advice be for them? Um, my advice would be to not forget where you came from. In other words, when you rehearse with your band and you're rehearsing in your garage or someone's basement or a rehearsal room, don't lose that excitement in the studio when the red light goes on. And understand what the differences are in the studio compared to where you've been been working. And try to have confidence in your producer that that he's the that you pick the right person. And sometimes they have very different ideas than you may have, and let them try their ideas and listen to them with an open mind because you've been holding some of your songs close to the vest for years, 
and you only hear them one way where they may hear them quite differently or, or a few different ways. So be right. open-minded and uh, just make sure in all the commotion of recording that you don't lose the feel and the song comes across in a heartfelt way. And as far as an engineer doing his first session, you got to know your place. You have to know who you are in that control room and you can't overstep your bounds. And you can't, you shouldn't be doing things that you think will get you noticed later. You know, you, you want to, you want to serve the song. Meaning you want to do what's right for this particular song you're working on, no matter whether you love the sound of the snare drum or hate the sound of the snare drum. If it enhances the other instruments and enhances the song, you have to go with it. So you can't make you can't make an engineer's record. It it doesn't work. At the end of the day, what the artist and producer are giving you, and as an engineer, recording engineer, and take that and expand on it and enhance it, and make that you're going to be giving and make that powerful. You're going to be given a song and an artist and a situation where you can hear what's going on clearly. And if you make the right decisions about what your, what your job is, enhancing the feel, finding ways in the recording to make the feel that they're giving you stronger so that the listener gets it without, without having to explain it to the listener, they hit play and they get it. That's what, that's your job. And uh, stay out of the politics. And one other thing, when you, this is something that I learned as an engineer, when you see, when you hear the conversation between a producer and an artist, and they, and, and they're talking about, well, the artist says, well, I don't hear the song that way. And I don't want to do it that way. And the, and the producer says, well, I really hear it this way. And, the, you know, more than two minutes of that stuff, it's going to suck the life out of the room. And it happens a lot. Suggest, try suggesting that you have this version that you just recorded. It'll only take three and a half minutes to go out and record the artist's version. And those versions will speak to you and, and, you'll be able to pick whatever the best version is for the song. For many people, Something like recording nowadays is a hobby. Even for me, someone who's spent the last decade and all of their teenage years on building a relatively respectable home studio, this isn't a full-time gig. I'm a student getting two college degrees and trying to keep up with my duties in my family. For Shelley, though, a recording studio has been a, a part of his whole life. And part of his family history. This is what makes Shelley uh, such a unique person to talk to about recording. 
as he has an intimate relationship with studios that virtually no one else does. To my mind, this is what makes Shelley as renowned as he is and has helped some of the records he's made be some of the most timeless out there. Shelley, thank you so much for being on the show. Your insight and recording is some of the best advice anybody could get to improve their craft. Sometime when this plague is over and I'm a little more set up for it, I'd love to have you by my studio sometime. I'm really intrigued to find out how you think to use this space and what you might think you'd change. Really though, I'm very interested to see how you'd approach something like drums or a live horn or string section. There are a lot of different ways to record in this space and I'm genuinely curious what you find. Speaking of studios, for all of you interested, Shelly has been offering something that's really great and something that I recommend you do. During the pandemic, Shelly has begun doing both mix and studio design consultations. You can book a one or a two hour session, and for my money, I think it's well worth it. Head over to his website, shellyakis.info, and schedule yourself a session. Trust me, you'll be glad you did. One more time, that is shellyyakus.info, S-H-E-L-L-Y-Y-A-K-U-S dot I-N-F-O. Head there right now, schedule yourself a session. This is Gear Talk, and today I want to continue on a topic of conversation that I posed with Shelly earlier. Today I want to talk about gear go-tos and what you like using in the studio. Now, for me, my go-tos aren't really set yet. Sure, I'm 19, and relative to my age, I've been doing this for a pretty long time. Yet, I'm still young. My tastes are still changing, and my interests change wildly. Let me just let you guys in on something. I will write a funk song, and then the next day, go ahead and program an electronic track. <laughs> now, there's, of course, some overlap musically, but there's always going to be differences in instrumentation and interests. Now, when we think about recording, of course there's go-tos, and there, everybody has pretty similar ones. 1176s, LA-2As, LA-3As, DBX-160s, Pultec EQs, certain manly equipment, Neve 1073s, API 312s, you name it, it's probably on that go-to gear list. At least for someone. For me, though, those tastes haven't completely set in yet. Yes, I don't deny that I love all of those pieces of equipment, but there's also so many different other pieces of gear that are really, really cool. I think this is what makes me gravitate towards modification and building. 
and why I have built several of my instruments and modified almost all of them. Now, I know I'm not the only one that has this mentality when it comes to go-to gear. So I really want to open it up to you guys. Tag us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tag me at the D3 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tag Blue Girl Productions, at Blue Girl Productions SF on Instagram, and at Blue Girl Prod SF on Twitter. And tag Ready to Record, at Ready to Record on Instagram and Twitter. Likewise, if social media doesn't suit your fancy, send us an email. We are ready to record at gmail.com, and the studio is Blue Girl Productions SF at gmail.com. I really want to know what you guys think of go-to gear, if you have any, and if your tastes are changing so that your go-to gear is changing. I think in a time when there's so much good equipment and so many really interesting sounds and a lot of availability for all of it, this is an interesting conversation to have. So let us know. Tell us what you think and what you like. Who knows? Maybe something you bring up might be on an episode of Gear Talk sometime in the future. This is music from Blue Girl, and this is a fun one because this piece of music technically has been on the show before, but not in a music from Blue Girl segment. This was actually used as background music on the Steve Eichner episode, and I really wanted to highlight it because it's a piece of music that I really need to go back and finish. This is a jazz fusion song that I came up with on upright bass and added a nylon string guitar accompaniment. Now, mind you, this is still just a demo, but the basic arrangement is there. I'm a fan of this song. I'm not going to lie to you. I've enjoyed this since I started writing it, and going back to the demo, I enjoy it still. It's got this open, airy vibe that I really dig, and being that so much of my music is very, very full and has a lot of space taken up, the idea of having a piece of music that's really open is a nice change of pace, especially in my own writing. So without further ado, here is my jazz fusion song that I think you'll really enjoy. One, two, three, four.
that's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Shelly Yakis for being on the show today. Man, it was such a great pleasure and an utter privilege to have you on, and I can't wait to speak with you soon. For all you listening, go, go, go now. Get Shelly's consultations. You'll be really glad you did. He's very smart. He knows how to make your mixes and your room sound so much better. Trust me. I, my next guest in two weeks was ranting and raving about Shelly's Aftermaster studio and how they did it. Speaking of, tune in. Next episode, we're going to have Mr. Toby Scott. He was Bruce Springsteen's main audio engineer for around 30 years. And he has some really interesting stories and some really cool insights about recording and being with Springsteen. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in very windy San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.